there, welcome to the Heavy Hole. My name is Tom. I'm Big Will, aka Uncle Breakfast. And I'm Justin. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, guys. How Top you doing? of the Top of something. We'll find out later today how it goes. Uh, yeah, meeting up earlier than usual today. Um, international flair with our guests in the booking. Uh, everybody's everybody's bright and chipper. How you doing, guys? What's going on over there? Uh, still dreaming a little bit. What it could have been like? Oh. Nah, it's I'm rested, man. I got <laughs> I got a good night, so I'm fine. I'm excited for tonight's guest. Getting over this weekend thing. Yeah, dream, dreams dreams of death is a reference to one of our guests. I hope it wasn't that. Um, Justin with the uh, wild wild was that the World Wildlife uh, Foundation supporting the animals hat. Oh no, it's the World Wrestling Federation. That, Old there school we go. Logo yes, Come supporting on. supporting the other animals. Ah. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Yeah, man. Yeah, dude, these shoot interviews come out, man. Some of those guys are wilding back in the day. Apparently still yeah. nowadays, but that's a legend. Oh, my God. Crazy Justin, people. what's going on with you? That's why I don't lift too many weights, because I don't want to get, you know, in that mindset. So keep my slender <laughs> frame. Yeah, not too much going <laughs> on, man. Had a nice, uh, nice relaxing weekend. Uh, did a little okay. fishing, you know, still trying to still hunting oh, down man. the big one. And uh, came up fucking really short, failed hard, flat on my face. Mm. Spent four hooks, lost some weights. Oof. Gotta go, uh, gotta hit the old tackle, uh, we call them tackle boxes, right? Tackle stores. Bait shops. Call them big tackle yeah, bait boxes. Shops, bait shops. To go, go to the old, uh, West Marine, whatever you gotta do. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still jealous though, because you're actually racking up way more fishing trips. Um, we don't count, we don't count how many you catch no. or how big they are. We just count getting out there and doing it. Yeah, if we didn't and, have um, grocery stores, we'd be counting, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, uh, you know, in terms of just getting out there and going fishing, you got me beat for this summer. I got to get busy on my days off of work, man. Um, you know, I've been uh, I've been here and there doing my thing. Harvested my first Long Island homegrown corn mm. uh, and ate it. Yeah, I need to look into the science of these things. I may have, uh, you know, it, it was all right. It was all right. It was didn't taste as sweet as the, the, uh, the store-bought. I got to look into the fertilizing and the science behind that, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, we'll see what happens, man. Uh, may have to mulch. Uh, who knows? Uh, sure. Maybe our listeners could help us with that. I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, I, we're actually doing, speaking of the listeners, um, a special, like, elite group of listeners that uh, pledge us on Patreon monthly. Uh, we're doing a new thing. I don't know if you guys even caught wind of this yet. If you've been on the Patreon account. I hacked in. I'm on it. I'm on Patreon with the Heavy Hole Podcast. How dare you? <laughs> uh, yeah, Sherwood Weber taught me how to sneak into your computer, Tom, and do what I got to do. It's all out there. Shout out to him. Um, and I, I, I said to, to the Patreon people, look, you know, you're doing us a solid. You're pledging the money every month. Once a month, or maybe even more, allegedly, I'm going to let you know who we're interviewing here on Patreon, and you can shoot us a couple of questions, right? Uh, I just got to shout out um, Alexander Joseph, Shane Rady, Adam Moore, Kent Mulcahy, and Sean Newhart. Um, and if you go to Patreon and uh, sign up for our Heavy Hole Podcast Patreon, you can see what questions they asked in our post there. Um, and you can be the judge yourself if we weaved that into our interview that we're about to divulge with you uh, from across the sea. Uh, all the way to Germany, where resides the man known as Dan Swano, prolific and eccentric heavy metal legend. Get him on the phone.
Yeah, I, I think we all appreciate that, uh, all those sentiments. Um, and so without further ado, as I said, uh, Dan, you know, we have so many questions about a lot of your projects over the years uh, and your, your, your own music and uh, some of the musicians you've worked with. But we always start off uh, early on in life. Uh, and I'll ask this. Um, we know that your brother, I believe the name Dag Swano, uh, is, is, is your brother, uh, is credited in some of the music you've worked on over the years. Um, besides that, do you come from a particularly musical family? And are there other people in your family besides him who play music? Well, um, I guess Dog, my brother, he is 10 years older than me. He is the, the most important figure in, in my early teens, I would say, up to the point where, where we kind of drifted apart a little bit, both as, as brothers and also musically. But, but that came a little bit later. And I guess for him, my oldest brother, Ingjald, um, who is six years older than him, making him 16 years older than me, is also an extremely important figure because he was the guy who was this uh, into all this obscure hard rock stuff. And um, he, he, of course, that rubbed, on, rubbed off on my brother and that they both kind of indoctrinated me from an extremely early age with whatever they were listening to. And uh, that, of course, has become a really big part of my musical DNA. Um, my mother and father, they were both musical, um, but it was not really that they were like in bands or whatever, but, but they made sure that there were musical instruments around and always supported me and my brother's musical endeavors by making sure that, you know, if it meant driving my drum kit to some local gig or, or buying gear. I mean, my father, he even built, um, I remember he built like... Um, 4x12 cabinet or something for for dog my brother and you know he just liked to to work um, with wood you know so he of course he made me all those fake guitars so I could pose with like a bottle of wine and a cigarette and and look rock you know that was that was important for like a five-year-old to look like the dudes on my brother's album covers you know just posing or whatever so yeah that's to answer your question, Dog was super important, and uh, we had a band when uh, in 1979 we formed a trio called Fords, like the the car manufacturer, but with a Z, so Fords, nice. based on the auto we, we used to have at the moment. I think we had a Ford Taunus at the time or something, and uh, yeah, we played together the three of us: my oldest brother on bass, Dog on drums, and I played uh, organ, and me and Dog shared the vocals and. You know, I still have that stuff recorded, and uh, it's pretty badass for for being so young, all of us. You know, so that but that was the one time we three did something together musically, and then Ingjald kind of lost interest. But he was, um, he still is, I guess, a very successful uh, DJ, like a party guy. You know, who just endless gigs playing his records to to people, and it's not one of those fancy DJs who make their own beats and shit. He just, you know, he just. Uh, I don't know, he did thousands of, of gigs, you know, as a DJ. And um, that's part of his musicality. I guess he, he was never really into taking the time to sit down and learn the bass guitar properly. He could, you know, play our songs. But you have to make a decision, you know, do I want to be a musician or do I want to do that other thing? And he was always into sports and, you know, trillion of other things and pretty early on also a family father. So it was up to me and Dog to, to carry on the kind of playing music in the traditional sense but he was of course always and still is a big music fan and probably the reason why both me and dog became music fans rather than sport fans or whatever you know 
Uh, okay, and you know, you mentioned early on the the um, playing the organ uh, in a band with your brothers. What is your first instrument, and are you um, schooled professionally? Is that part of um, the the typical schooling where you're from in in Sweden to learn an instrument, or were there private lessons, or was um, it just? Um, yeah, go on. Yeah, I think they they try really hard to to make sure that you kind of when they see that you have an interest in music. Uh, in school, you go to f- play the recorder. Uh, that's like the beginning. It's like you you have to make then rather than go on a break and play football with your friends, you go to some teacher and play the recorder and learn some really simple tunes. And from there, they will get it if you have what it takes to actually be playing an instrument at all. And when you do, you can then move on to maybe learn how to play, I don't know, the violin or the piano or the drums or whatever. But uh, I never had the uh, attention span. I still don't. I have some kind of HD, AD, or what you call this, you know, like just have to do 16 things at the same time. So I, w- I could never, ever go through this to have to do what a teacher tells me to do kind of thing. It just didn't work for me. So I did it my way. You know, I played um, drums at a really early age, but but also organ. They, they were kind of 50-50 almost. And... Um, there was a way to, to express me both, I mean, playing the organ and sing, and then playing the drums. So those are two completely different universes, and I wanted to master them both. So I stayed away from, from like, string instruments, because uh, at a really early age, it was, because I'm ambidextrous, you know, I chose to play drums the traditional way, but guitar felt more natural for me left-handed, which made that, like, hmm, okay, so I will just skip that, you know, I will play the stuff that I play in a more traditional way, because there's only one way to play the organ. Uh, and, of course, the drums, I'm happy that I, I chose to play it the traditional way, otherwise you would have always a problem by sound check. Oh, I'm a left-hand drummer. Like, oh, shit, you know, we just have to switch over everything in festivals and shit. It was always a yeah. nightmare, you know. So, But for the guitars, it wasn't really up until, I guess, um, like in the mid-'80s, when my band Ghost decided to go from being a, a duo with organ and drums um, and later on we added a bass player also and, and at that point we felt hmm, maybe we should you know to play the music that we want to play even though uh, a kind of almost distorted organ it's kind of cool you know but we wanted to go more in the in the way of like Europe they were super big at the time so Anders the, the organ player started to play guitar and then I felt hmm if I don't learn how to play guitar more properly I cannot write songs anymore because it's it's really weird for me to write on an organ and then he have to translate that into how you play it on a guitar so um, then I just said oh who, who cares you know I will learn to play the guitar upside down I don't care I just want to write you know so at that point I um, also became a bit of a guitar player and of course also knew how to play the bass then in, in some ways but I never cared enough to like oh flip it over and learn how to play it in a traditional right hand way I just said fuck that I'm a drummer you know so this is how yeah. I play guitar very much like actually Nika Andersson from Entombed and Helicopters he did exactly the same thing but he is also a left handed drummer but he also played the guitar upside down for much of those most classic Entombed stuff and so and there's there's a few other I think I discover like one guy per month or whatever who also play a traditional guitar held left-handed but the strings are still like upside down gives you a completely different outlook you know when the thick string is down and the bright strings are up 
you, you invert chords and you make the weirdest shit. And then for a traditional guitar player to play it, they just shake their heads and like, fuck, you know, I cannot play that. That's like impossible unless you have like 10 fingers on your right hand. I said, sorry, you know, it's just the way I write. So that, that's how it is. But to answer your question, I am a non-schooled drummer and pretty much I know my way around keys also, you know. You know, quickly, I never realized that the, the album uh, Left Hand Path had like a literal correlation with the guitar work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's actually true. Uh, it blew yeah, my um, mind also when I heard that, that he, he, uh, he just took whatever instrument in the studio and just flipped it over and played the riff he wrote upside down. And I played a lot with, with some um, left hand guitar players and it seems that they can do both, you know. At some point, it's, oh, what is this? And they just learn how to play a bit upside down, but then they realize to be able to do all the traditional stuff, they need to learn how to play it with the bass strings on top, you know? So they re-strung them or bought a left-hand guitar. But most of the guys, they can actually play it both ways, which I find very interesting. Yeah, it's so foreign to me. I mean, I'm a right-handed guitar player, Justin is as well, and uh, I am, as you said, shaking my head right now. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it looks, I mean, it looks terrible. You know, whenever I see myself on, on video or a picture, I was like, fuck, that looks so bad. So that, that's really why I never accepted the fact that like, yeah, I'm a guitar god, you know, this is like, it looks all wrong. What you're doing is crazy. But there, there was an option there to, to either me being only a singer in Nightingale or actually keep it down to a four piece and, and learn how to play guitar standing up, which was, you know, in itself a really big challenge because I always sit down and play guitar. And all of a sudden, everything just feels different. And then you have to sing at the same time. And that was just like, whoa. But, but uh, I persevered and, and became pretty good at it, actually. So, so that, but I'm still not a guitar player or a bass player. I, I, I am a drummer at heart. And then you just, that, that's just how it is. You know, you can ask any drummer who started out with this and then just went on playing. You, you're, you will remain a drummer. That's a part of your of who you are but you can mess around with other instruments as well you know yeah yeah it's interesting to hear you say that um you know you having played so many instruments on so many different albums and that's kind of to speak to how prolific you've been throughout the years um you know you mentioned uh you know possibly um having something maybe like adhd uh yeah. <laughs> or, or something to, to to that regard and you also brought up being left-handed and you spoke a little bit about playing guitar left-handed would you credit either of those um, things that, that kind of set you aside from, from, from some people um, to how prolific you've been and to how diverse and kind of eccentric your catalog has been? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have seen um, some people who definitely don't have that condition or what you want to call it. And they were always like giving me a hard time for not focusing on just the one thing and making that as big as possible or whatever. Which is, of course, a way to do stuff, you know, just be that, that one guy who never venture into to side projects or, you know, whatever. But that was never me. I mean, my mother told me that I always had like three or four different sets of toys to play with. And I played with one for like 25 seconds, run across the room, played with another. There was a bit Lego here, played with a bit cars there, run out in the kitchen, bang on some whatever, and then run back, you know, it was never really the kid who sit down and like focus on one thing for a long time and and even when we were having this kind of monogamy as a band thing within that band we had side projects you know we were two guys we formed ghost in 83 
and I remember us having at least two or three other bands with the same members, but we just kind of, oh, let's, let's now have another project on this rehearsal. Let's play freeform jazz or stupid weirdo music, whatever. And then we play some ghost songs again. And then we, you know, just the two of us, we had all these imaginary different projects. Um, we recorded them. You know, there, there's always demos of this. We had one called Skylight, which is kind of instrumental, nice background music. And then we had some other totally weird stuff. And But it was the two of us. You know, we didn't bring in a third member and he was not in the real band. So I could say from an extremely early age, there was always me having like, either I had a solo project, but I was like a part of that band still, or within the band we did other projects so the idea for me to just form one band do that you know forever that's just not in the cards for me and of course that made all those projects that you guys know of it's because of that because none of them were ever intended to be like the main band the main band was in many ways ghost who later turned into icarus and then into unicorn and we existed pretty much non-stop from 83 until 99 but all the other stuff on the side were just side projects or weird one-offs that took off because metal compared to prog rock was more in at the time, you know? Yeah. Mm. Wow. Wow. That's, that's a, especially um, given your catalog in the 90s and how much you participated in the different waves of metal. Not to jump ahead, but on that point, um, respectfully... Is that perhaps the nature of the rift in Edge of Sanity um, on the Infernal album and then later on the Cryptic album on which you did not appear? Yeah, I think it was, was always so that, that any project band we had had the opportunity. It was a small window of time where you made the decision if that's going to be a one-off, that was fun, let's never do it again, or it was actually the inception of a band that would later on start rehearsing after we had written and recorded the first demo, which is, of course, ass backwards of how you're supposed to do things. But that's just the way it worked in, in Finspong, where I grew up, because I had that four-channel cassette studio thing, and I, I was obsessed with making it sound as good as possible, because I figured out pretty early on that this whole saying, oh, it's just a poor studio, it's a demo, it will suck whatever we do. That's not true. The difference from what you record onto that cassette is actually, I mean, it sounds better than you would record a CD down to a cassette, which in itself sounded pretty okay. But you had the double speed on the Porta cassette, which made it sound like a CD down to a Porta actually sounded extremely close to the CD other than the tape noise. So then I realized, so, the more I focus on getting good sounds, even though I only have four channels on this limited cassette medium, it will sound great. You know, I didn't buy that, oh, it's only a Porta thing. So I, I figured the more I record, the more bands we form, the more songs we do, the more live takes I learn how to engineer, the better the demos from my real band, Unicorn, will sound. And, and that was true, you know, I learned extremely much from recording metal. I mean, one of the first recordings I did, um, I mean, the, the first paid recording I did uh, was with FZO in November of 89, and they played music like Cryptic Slaughter, which is like full-on blast beat crossover stuff, and I mean, that was what I cut my teeth on doing, not some kind of, 
fusion jazz or whatever, you know, with lots of dynamic, was like full-on assault with blast beats and God knows what, all recorded live except the vocals. And I had to figure that one out to make sure that you could hear what everyone was playing. And then when you, when you start recording music with more space in it, of course, the sound all of a sudden like, wow, this sounds really good because there's not this uh, compact, massive sound, you know, coming out of the music itself. So a lot of those projects, they were kind of made up for me also to get the recording experience. Oh, let's form a doom band, let's form a whatever. You know, we had all kinds of stuff, punk band, hardcore bands, you name it. And um, I think Edge of Sanity was just one of those supposed to be a one-off that I just couldn't let go. And mm. when that became later on more of a band, and of course the boost of having a record deal, not even a year after we, we did that first kind of demo session, that boosted our, our confidence. So for a while, Edge of Sanity was a band for me and for the other guys. We, we did the band stuff, you know. And then after Unorthodox, it became clear that I could not keep up with this being a band. So it reverted back to a project. So a lot of the records we made, I would say all the records we made after Unorthodox, they are made by a project band that was desperately trying to find material to fulfill our contract of like one record a year and that's why they sound so shattered after a while and of course also why Infernal was my record plus their record because I felt that I could not be held back by the playing abilities of the other guys and also the fact that we didn't rehearse, we didn't even meet, we didn't live in the same city but we, we both had this we don't want to give up the chance of, of having an album recorded and paid for by a label and distributed because we still enjoyed writing songs, you know. And I was always scared of what Blackmark would say when, when we broke up. You know, would there be legal consequences? Would we be sued or, you know, whatever. So we just kept going at it. But it was always really a project thing. And that made it... Um, I, I care less about whatever happened to the project. And that freed you up a little bit. And you have the guts to try weirder stuff because if it doesn't work, it's not the end of the world. You don't make a living out of this band. You know what I mean? It's just a thing. Right. And it, yeah, well, it's, I, it's about getting like the actual album done and like the, the, the not, not to say the quality, but like the content of it uh, can take all kinds of variations. It's just about getting the tracks done. So... Yeah. And sometimes it was... I mean... The way we had to do it was that I had a couple of weeks off from... I mean, I run a full-time studio. I worked, like, every day for, like, four years straight. And there was two weeks when we could record, and that meant that there was no time for me to really rehearse with the other guys, and I had to try to find time to write the songs, you know, at home. After coming home from a day of recording black metal, I had to sit down and try to write some deaf black myself, which wasn't always easy. But you have that moment in time you need to be ready in these two weeks and if you're not things are going to get ugly or at least we thought so so that was always the kind of a pressure but um for a band that you know really strongly believe in their music and they want to do this full time and be the biggest band in the world that would be a nightmare scenario but but for us i think it was okay we all had side projects and you know families and girlfriends and stuff at the time so it was just like oh cool this German label is paying us money to put a bunch of songs together and just 
release it. Cool, you know, we'll see. We didn't even tour for many of our albums. We just released them. And I think the spontaneity we had and the, the, the chances we took by putting all this weird stuff on it, it kind of made us stick out a little bit in the kind of... I mean, stuff became a little bit generic there after a while, uh, especially when, when you had that... I mean, we were a part of kind of the second wave of death metal, and then they became a, a, another wave that came after us. And it was a beginning to be a little bit formulaic, a little bit watered down, and I think we just started doing like goth songs, Manowar cover versions, The Police covers, one-track albums, all weird kind of shit. And we just, you know, dared to, to stray away from the path of this like one song and they all sound the same kind of death metal albums that, that were out at the time. So I guess that kind of saved us in a way, you know. But it would be hard if, if we were trying to make a living out of the music. I think we would have thought a lot different, you know, of of how it's it's gonna be for sure yeah um yeah th th there's a lot to that and i i could definitely understand um you know what, what you mean about the band uh being like more of a, a project that you're not not as atta attached to as a, as a full-time career and you're investing your whole life into it um and while we're on the topic you know you mentioned recording a lot of those metal projects to get experience recording and you also mentioned something i found interesting was that um, perhaps you, you ventured more into the metal and worked more with metal and are more known for metal because metal was more readily available and commercial than Prague in the 90s when, when you were kind of cutting your teeth. Could you talk to us a little bit about recording the earlier Edge of Sanity records um, when the technology was not as readily available uh, and a little bit more primitive, but you were doing very progressive things? Um, setting yourself aside and setting the bar high for that that kind of um, renowned Swedish death metal sound. Yeah, we did um, the first two records we did in a pretty professional place up in Stockholm called Montezuma Recordings that had been uh, used by Bathory and Candlemass and later on Therion would use it. So that was um, that was more of I mean we, we we really didn't get it right on the first album. But by the time we came back for Unorthodox to the same studio and the same engineer, we knew everything that had went wrong with the first one. So we pretty much brought all our own equipment down there because we thought with the first album that a professional studio had everything like my studio had. And it was just like a moldy cellar without any toilets or windows. But still, I had a full back line and, you know, bands who didn't have any instruments, they could borrow that guitar or borrow that bass and they were all good equipment. So we thought a big studio in Stockholm, they must have like the best stuff. So let's just bring one guitar. And I still remember the look on the face of the engineers like, uh, where's all your gears? Uh, we brought one guitar. And it's like, oh fuck, you know? <laughs> so what's the problem? Yeah, we don't have any gear. We're a studio, you know, we're like a fucking music shop. So he had to pull some strings and uh, on actually Christmas day, uh, 1990 he, he had a friend open up a, a music store that was of course closed so we could rent some stuff <laughs> and then I had to put together whatever was lying around the studio and try to to salvage it uh, into a fully functional drum kit or whatever it was a nightmare so we made sure that didn't repeat for the second one uh, but the gear in, in that studio was was really top-notch they had a really good good console and and good two-inch, 24-track thing. Uh, so the real challenge started when I decided to do The Spectral Sorrows myself 
in, in my studio, which was at the time a 16-track, but the machine was kind of bad, so you couldn't really punch in or out uh, without having some kind of gap or weird disturbance in the force, so to speak. So you had, you had really to, to play the stuff pretty much from the beginning to the end. And um, that was pretty rough, but, but the guys learned the stuff, and, and I think... The, the more experimental stuff with Edge of Sanity was actually more inside the music. There was not that much studio trickery going on. That came a little bit later when, when I started to, to uh, work more, you know, with kind of, I would say, using computers more and then programming some stuff and so. But I think the early days, uh, my studio had pretty much the same kind of gear like Sunlight. We had the same 16-track Fostex machine and a pretty shitty pretty much like the console was not really a professional console at all my first one was more of a PA console and then I bought a studio console a little bit later on so um, I think maybe it sounds more complex than it really is because like I said we had nothing really fancy I had like one reverb unit and just made sure that the music was adventurous you know and, and in itself made it sound um, bombastic you know, there's really still no effects, you know, that you can make a song sound more like in the music of it. You know, you have to make sure that when you write a song, even on like a nylon acoustic guitar uh, in your bedroom, if it sounds bombastic in that format, it's just going to blow up when you start adding production. But um, some people still believe that you can make boring song just bombastic by putting reverbs or whatever, but it doesn't work that way. You know, the music has to, to have it in it, you know. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think that speaks a lot to performance and rehearsal and um, and and songwriting going on uh, back then. When you you know when you you say no studio trickery, so to speak, um, and and you know just on edge of sanity a little bit more. Uh, you know, you mentioned recording um, a longer song. Uh, you know, I, I think obviously we're, we're, we think of Crimson uh, when you say that. Could you speak a little bit about the concept behind Crimson? Um, not just the, the idea of recording a longer song like that, but uh, like the the, um, uh, the 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 concept, I guess you could say, lyrically behind it uh, or aesthetically behind it. And also, was there a backlash from elements of the metal scene over you doing something, I guess, maybe uh, so adventurous? Well, the, the first thing is that that I kind of coming from a more progressive rock background I, I kind of listen a lot and I always love these kind of one track albums or at least like one track per side or you know all these long epic songs because I I enjoyed the progressive rock thing had that kind of limitless arrangement thing you didn't have to think too much about writing your intro and your verse and your bridge and your chorus and repeat that shit and the song is over you just put stuff together and there was a time when when I wrote my death metal songs kind of in the same way where you, you had a bunch of riffs and you wrote the next riff to kind of work with the one before but none of them were really thought of as like oh that's a chorus or you know they were just a bunch of riffs put together and then you sang something on them and sometimes the hook would just come once in the track when you sang like what the song was called and and some of the riffs in the beginning would never come back again at the end of the song and, and stuff like that and we went a little bit formulaic with Edge of Sanity after a while where you actually s we started to go more for like a traditional rock structure of almost every song and uh, that was beginning to bore me a little bit around 95 so 
The idea to make a, a one-track album um, had always been there, you know, and we had done the Bragoon Chinar track with Pandemonium was like 22 minutes, like one side on the vinyl. And also Twilight was pretty lengthy, around seven minutes or something. And also, already back in the time of Enigma, it was more like a mini death opera with it's divided into parts and this and that, you know. So I had it kind of cooking, but I thought the master stroke must be to, to make like a one song only, you know, like uh, I know much of the stuff that I grew up listening to, it was called like Oxygen and then part one, two, three, four, five. But to me, they were like one constant flow of music from the beginning to the end. And I used to have this John michel Jarre tapes with like Equinox on one side and Oxygen on the other. And they would just go on, on auto reverse in my tape deck and I was just constant evolving nice flow of music. And I wanted to do that also with the death metal thing and the, the fact was that we had almost no time uh, to write anything and I know it sounds strange but it's actually a lot easier to write a 40 minute song than it is to write 10 four minute songs because when you when you have like a formula going it meant that you had to come up with 10 killer choruses 10 cool intros 10 cool verses and that's a lot of writing you know and within that that framework you cannot just all of a sudden have the the verse going on for two minutes and then you have a short thing and then another part comes and then the song is over so i was inspired by the idea that i pretty much ripped off from opeth after having done their orchid album which blew my mind you know to a million pieces because they did this what i was kind of hoping that I would be doing in the future, but they kept it down to like a bunch of 15-minute songs where no rules applied. It was all like, oh, shit, this is what you can do, you know? And um, I openly admit that I that, that Opeth was like the... They opened the floodgates for me, but nobody had heard Opeth at the time. You know, I was one of like five people in the world who knew they existed. So, um, because Orchid took like a year to come out, that, that made me kind of an Opeth rip-off <laughs> before anyone knew it but it was more like the concept of letting the music flow where it wants to go so I try to explain to the other guys that yeah we haven't written really any songs there's no real time to to do anything because I live here you live there and we all have to do this during like some holiday like Easter or then you take some time off during the summer and just record the thing you know so um we met up in the studio, had moved to Örebro in this time, and we all sat in a, in a circle in the control room, and Benny was on the drums in the other recording room, and we talked to him through the talkback mic, and I just said, okay, I have this idea. You know, it was like inspired by a riff that I had kind of stolen from myself, from a Nightingale record, the first one. So I said, I thought that riff was underused on my solo album, so that will be this opening riff from Crimson and we just started jamming on that stuff and that riff goes on for a minute or two even you know just the same four notes and we just kind of expand on it and then we stop and then come this weird part just like something I played on the on the guitar through an effects pedal and we just go on and just the shit and then I would start playing this harmony here and blah and blah and then I remember Andreas having a bit of a fit after like I don't know four or five minutes like who oh, are gonna stop that fucking Pink Floyd shit, you know, and make some metal. I was like, ah, for me, we don't have to ever, you know. But they were like, oh, I'm not gonna play this shit, you know. So 
all of a sudden it took a turn to, to have like a really fast riff coming in. And from then all the floodgates just open. It's just like anything goes here. And we have the fastest and the doomiest and the black metalest and the gothicest whatever is on that same track. But you could not just take a chunk out of Crimson, like a four minute starting here, ending there, and put it on a normal album and say, this is a song. There is no structure in the traditional sense. And that was appealing to me. And it's also not the case of just stapling a bunch of random riffs we had written over a year period. No, all what you hear is written chronologically. There were no other ideas than me wanting to bring in that little four-note Nightingale thing. And the rest is just written on the spot. Like, oh, that was a fast, let's go down, and after this doom part, let's go straight into a blast part. And you know, all these weirdest ideas, they just happen, but they could never happen um, in, in the traditional way that Edge of Sanity wrote songs. So that was super exciting. And um, the, the actual buzz about Crimson being a 40-minute song, like one-track yeah. album, made everyone just go, wow, before they'd even heard it. You know, so for for us, I mean, it was number one on the distribution list for like four or five weeks, and and we were barely on that thing, you know, with the other records. So there was definitely a buzz going on because it was such an outrageous and weird thing to be doing, and um, yeah, metal was not really in a super state around '96. You know, it, it started to to be a little bit weird there with, with all all the bands mellowing out, you know, and, and being not what they used to be. And of course, Edge of Sanity too. We completely were not doing any of that traditional death metal stuff, but we were actually more violent and more experimental than we had ever been on any of the other records, but just not all the time, you know? So you had Light and Shade was, was more extreme. And um, I mean, the concept of the lyrics um, was something that me and Andreas just dreamt up you know, I had seen the movie Prince of Darkness like a trillion times, and there's this weird um, thing in the basement, which is like some kind of glass cocoon with some green stuff in it flowing around, which is evil itself or whatever it is. I don't, really don't know. But I just love the imagery of that thing, and I thought they, they should capture some innocent, like a young girl or whatever, who is evil itself, and, and uh, this is the place where it can be captured, you know, to, to not escape. And we came up with this idea that uh, humans could not uh, have kids anymore, you know. Infertility, I think is the word. And all of a sudden there's this virgin birth again. And everyone's like, whoa, super happy, you know, maybe it's, it's going to work. But that was, of course, evil itself being born and uh, it would just end mankind. But they kind of figured out a thing or two and managed to cage this in this crimson water thing there and life went on you know but of course then came the sequel <laughs> the crimson too <laughs> but but I, I mean as a concept we spent way more time writing the lyrics than we did writing the music which is pretty weird so i think we wrote the music in like 24 hours over like a three-day period we worked like eight hour shifts and just wrote 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 and um yeah but but the lyrics were a pain in the ass i remember it because Neither me or Andreas are really big into writing short stories or poetry or lyrics. We just pretty much did our thing. But here we had to tell a story and it had to, to work. You know, we could not just 
find out after like 30 minutes oh fuck the end is what, what is the end you know uh, you know so we, we had to really do something we never did and and I actually let uh, Clive Nolan from Arena and Pendragon write the lyrics for Crimson too because I, I didn't want to go back there you know that was that was just enough <laughs> for me yeah sounds daunting yeah yeah it, um, it was a nightmare <laughs> well I, you know, and it obviously wasn't an easy process because not to rehash, um, you know, there's so much there you talk about, but, but you know, Crimson uh, comes out and then the album Infernal and then the album Cryptic, which you are not part of, which we already discussed and covered, uh, but then you come back and record all the instruments on Crimson 2. Um, and that's kind of like, I guess, the uh, like the, the final um, release of Edge of, uh, Edge of Sanity. Um, you know, I've heard you state state in like past interviews that you kind of wanted to come back with Crimson Two to just have your say of I guess where where you wanted the creative direction to go, if that's accurate. Um, and is it also fair to say that you tried to continue some of that creative flow from Edge of Sanity in your solo work um, and even into um, uh, Witherscape? Yeah, well, well, the the real story goes that. I tried to to like do like a mutiny thing and take over Edge of Sanity after Inferno. I wanted it to be my project because I've seen so many other bands where it was like this one guy he just kicked out all the members and he kept the band going and they got like new members and they made new albums, they started touring and it seems to be going great. So I thought stupidly and very I don't know. It was not really in my finest moment. So I just wrote the other guys a letter and said, hey, you can pretty much do whatever you want. I am now Edge of Sanity and you can do whatever. And they didn't like the idea very much, <laughs> which I can understand. <laughs> so they told me, no, you're not. You know. So at the end of the day, the label chose to go with them. And with a new singer, they became Edge of Sanity. And I was like, oh, what I do then, you know? So I thought all the time that oh, I will show you guys, I will make the best melodic death metal album ever. And I started writing on my own, but nothing came of it. It just sounded really bad and not what I wanted to do because it was all me, all me playing all the instruments. So I did then an album called Moon Tower, which was my kind of first answer to Cryptic, which was completely different, you know, and no death metal in there at all musically. The only thing that is is kind of putting it in that uh, category is the growling vocals. And um, I think Moon Tower did better than, than Cryptic, but it still didn't do very well because the world wasn't ready for a full-on like prog metal rock meets growling vocal thing in 1998. It was, it was too soon, you know? And <clears throat> what happened was that that was officially the end of Edge of Sanity uh, because they, they stopped being Edge of Sanity somewhere pretty close at the end of the century. And um, we did like a um, compilation kind of thing where also there's one song where I do a growling together with Robert, the, the singer from, from Cryptic. And um, we thought that's the end of it, you know? That's, um, I think it was released in 1999, which was then 10 years after we had formed. And uh, that was it, you know? That was the end of Edge of Sanity. But um, for some reason, when I started talking to, to the label about doing doing something again in the style of Moon Tower, you know, or whatever, 
the the business side of things started taking over and and I remember discussing with with boss who was very much in it for the business side of things he he was not really this musician kind of label owner guy you know he he was more like the business guy so he saw things very differently and at the time I was you know just working as a normal sales guy in in a music shop and I still had a lot of debt uh, from you know some I took some strange loans with high interest and whatever shit and I needed to to really make a quick buck so when he told me that he would pretty much quadruple or I don't know pay me a lot more money if I would call this whatever I'm doing edge of sanity rather than another solo album and at first my first reaction was just what I cannot you know it's not that easy you know but for him it was oh, why not that's stupid you know you will sell much more records and everything will be you know and this and that and and he actually he pitched me such a high number that I just couldn't let go of it because it, it would fix so many problems for me financially I said but it is so embarrassing you know for me to to come back and do this and and then how will I do it what will it be and then it just kind of snowballed into becoming Crimson 2 because it meant that I could do all this kind of stuff I could use some themes from the first Crimson and put this together with the ideas I had written for what I felt could be my second solo album and I still remember a very awkward meeting with three of the other guys uh, on one side and me and Boss on the other where we kind of asked permission for me alone to make an Edge of Sanity album and for them it was also super weird because we were officially over but then Boss did his sales pitch about how the back catalog would start selling and how they would all make a shitload of money from the money generated from the back catalog maybe being repressed, you know, reissued and like everything would just be the best and you know and that was the end of it they were okay with it as long as I didn't go out touring or you know do that kind of stuff so it was like you did one album without me now I do one album without you and then it's finally mega over and and that's what happened you know it, it's been dead ever since but it was never intended to be it's not like I woke up one day and said hmm I think I, I will be Edge of Sanity and do Crimson 2 it all just happened it, it's 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 weird how that shit happens sometimes in the recording industry. You know, I've heard so many horror stories about how you started at one point, but you ended up at another. And it was all the producer and the label and, you know, they did stuff. And you just were not in the position to say no because they were dangling so much money over your head. You said, like, fuck, I need that stuff. So, okay, let's sell my soul. But I think at the end of the day, it turned out pretty cool. You know, it was, was also good for me that the music I, I did became Edge of Sanity because I saw then later on with Witherscape that you know if that would have been released under the Edge of Sanity name it would have been a whole other thing because people people I mean sometimes I'm surprised how people not know about Edge of Sanity at all and then to think that they will absolutely not know about Witherscape at all because that's like 0.1% of the of the vibe of Edge of Sanity that's already out there and to expect that stuff to just take off and sell and you know that that's just weird thinking because that's the way the industry works you have to really push like an overkill behind everything you want to do in terms of touring promotion and all that stuff and and the what I come from this project stuff just record something and let the label release it when they don't really see how this could take off and generate shitloads of money for them they're also pretty easy on the on the promotion but 
Musically, I wanted Witherscape to go back to kind of the vibe that was there around uh, Crimson Two and, and Moon Tower. Uh, but still, when, when you listen to the Witherscape albums, there are no traditional death metal playing on any instrument ever. The hardest we get is kind of power metal or a bit thrash, but it's all the growling that people make it. I mean, when I hear people say oh, death metal and witherscape in the same sentence, I'm like, eh, did you, did you ever hear left and path? I mean, there's in any of that on, you know, come on, you know, but the growling vocals, you know, it's, it's so, but just because you would put opera on a fucking thrash metal album, it would not be opera. You know what I mean? It would be thrash with opera vocals. So that's what it is. It's like progressive metal with some growling on it. You know, when we talk about witherscape. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I guess I could see both sides of the argument um, uh, in, in terms of the vocals and what constitutes death metal. I don't want to wade into that debate, but um, uh, that, that's that's a lot of interesting stuff. That's a lot to digest. And uh, you know, speaking of a lot, we've been talking to you for a while, Dan. I still have a few questions. Unfortunately, with uh, a catalog as vast as yours, we're not going to be able to ask you about every single thing you've ever recorded or worked on. Um, <laughs> You know, okay. and, and just for the, you know, we always recommend music to the listeners. For the listeners, I would just suggest, you know, typical of our podcast is usually death metal, maybe more in the uh, dirty, raw, and old school categories of death metal and grindcore and black metal. So obviously, Edge of Sanity was a big focus for us here. And uh, I'm personally a big fan of, I, I hope I can pronounce this right, um, op- Ophthalamia, if I said it right, and Panthimonium. Um, I, I guess projects that are a little bit more eccentric and adventurous, uh, but also tend to be maybe a little bit more brutal in death metal, d- depending on what part of the song. Could you maybe talk about um, uh, just just you know the, the experiences recording with with um, those bands um, and and uh, you know maybe your, your more eccentric projects and your more adventurous death metal themed projects like that? Yeah, well, Ophthalamia or Ophthalamia or whatever that that was like um, that was a started as a project with a friend of mine called Tony Itzerke, who was also the guy behind Abruptum, this the most mm-hmm. evil band ever. And um, that was just him. I mean, he was a really musical guy. He, he had a unique way of writing strange riffs. He had a unique way of playing guitar. And I also loved his, his growling voice. So that was, I was never a part of Optolamia as a musician, but I guess I took on some kind of traditional producer role in the, in the early times, in the way that I kind of sponsored the recording of, of the first songs they wrote by, because the guy didn't have any money, but he was a nice guy and we had been playing together in a band called Brain Dead, so we were friends, you know, so I said, well back again to this, let's just record some stuff, I will learn from it, and you will have a demo, you don't have to pay me, but you know, it, it's good fun, so um, did some demos the first song it's called Eternal Walk. I think we might have recorded it, I don't know, two or three times or whatever. And then slowly from there, um, Tony found a, a bunch of guys that, that he could actually rehearse with. And um, they kept coming back to me to record. And at some point it actually started being more like I record them for money because I was having a studio at the time and I just couldn't afford all the freebies. But but there were a lot, in, in the early times there was a lot of free studio time to kind of develop the, the weirdness that was Optalamia. And um, I think by the time that they did the um, Journey into Darkness album, 
and also the demo before it, they really became um, a very special band because they had that kind of traditional hard rock vibe going more like Black Sabbath. I know Tony was really big on that kind of Masters of Reality kind of vibe from Black Sabbath and he just wanted all the songs to be in this kind of I mean when you would have put a really soulful clean singing on top of it it would have been really cool 70s hard rock but he he chose to have all growls or or whispers or you know this kind of narration thing going on on top of it and I thought that was a really interesting mix and Benny the drummer from Edge of Sanity was in Optalamia a lot and, and also Robert, the guitar player from Pandemonium, he was also playing bass uh, for Optalamia. So it was an, an interesting recording scenario and uh, also important in the way that Yoon from Dissection was chosen as the session singer for the Journey in Darkness album, which made him and me connect and made him come to my studio to do the Somberlane from Dissection. Because he could just do the vocals on an album um, and just realize I like the vibe here compared to the more traditional studio where you have to stand in a booth and there's glass windows and you know this and that. I had none of that. I had no control room, nothing. It was all in one room and um, he liked the vibe. So luckily, you know, he came back for Sambling and also later Storm of the Light Spain. So yeah, Optolamia was, was an important part. And when it comes to Pandemonium, that was more um, started off like all other things as a kind of I think the very, very beginning of Pandemonium was me on drums and Robert, the guitar player, yeah, he played guitar also. We just, we just messed around one day in, in the rehearsal room and um, he tuned down the guitar extremely low and we just started jamming on like the intro riff to uh, World Eater from Bolt Thrower. And we're just playing that. And I think I tried to learn how to play double kicks because his little brother had a double kick drum kit there. And we were just having fun. And then I kind of fell in love with that sound of tuning down a traditional guitar, you know, with normal thickness on the strings, like super low. And you get that super sludgy, really weird sound. And we kind of metamorphosed into something that would be more like... Um, a bit like that intro from Realm of Chaos with Bolt Thrower and mix in a little bit of all the other stuff that at the time was forbidden to do with Edge of Sanity because we were super strict. There were rules, you know, you cannot have that kind of riff, you cannot do this, you cannot do that. So all what we couldn't do in Edge of Sanity, we did in overkill versions with Pandemonium. We had tons of keyboards tuned down as low as you could. We had super weird kind of vocals and, you know, super doomy, super blast beats, all just like combined in a super weird manner. And, and that was really a cool experiment phase, you know, because when some stuff really seems to be working and I got that good euphoric feeling from it that I need to connect with music, I started thinking about maybe Edge of Sanity could tune down the guitars a few steps and maybe we could have a bit more keyboard, you know, and maybe a bit faster, maybe a bit doomier. So we were kind of trying it out with Pandemonium and when it worked we kind of made it work also for Edge of Sanity because when you follow the evolution of Edge of Sanity we went from like traditional tuning guitar there was really you know we had our style it was more rooted in kind of a death thrash than traditional death metal but 
the more we recorded, the tuning went lower and lower, and, and we were at one point on Crimson down to A with the rhythm guitars, which is like really much lower than the traditional E tuning, you know? So we gradually went deeper and deeper and had more and more keyboards. And um, yeah, that was because it's really worked well with Pandemonium to the point where actually some members of Edge of Sanity were kind of jealous of the weird stuff we created with Pandemonium, especially the Dream 2 EP, you know? And um, yeah, and after, after we had kind of started recording the Dawn of Dreams album, written the Dragoon Shina track and all that, I felt a little bit like Pandemonium had run its course, you know, that the experimentation had gone full circle. We had a full album recording contract with Osmos. We had done that kind of stuff that I wanted to do. The experimentation was over, but again, we were contractually obliged to go on making records for Osmos. So we just, you know, we made more stuff like the Chaos album and, and this and that, that I'm not, it's not really my cup of tea, but I know there's a lot of people who like that stuff too. But that was again a project that turned into kind of a band. We rehearsed and we were serious. And then it just kind of, for me, I just kind of lost interest, you know. Okay. Um, well, I appreciate the insight uh, as, you know, I'm a fan of both those projects. And you kind of, you kind of segued into some of the other stuff I wanted to ask you about. Um, respectfully, you did mention working with Tony Sarka. Um, uh, A.K.A. It of Abruptum, um, you know, rest in peace. And uh, I wanted to ask you, like I said, respectfully and without, and with respect to the the mystery and the legacy of Abruptum, if I pronounce it right, could you tell us a little bit about the recording sessions for that band, um, which kind of are, are infamous and have a, um, a, a mystery about them in underground lore? Yeah, I think um, they were always. They were they were after something, you know. They they had kind of a of a vibe they wanted to to um, to create, and I I had really no idea how to get them there. And if you listen to the first Abruptum demo, which is on YouTube, it it's kind of kind of lame. It's nothing special, you know. I wanted, you know, I know what he was after, but I just couldn't couldn't do it at the time with my four track cassette machine, and. Um, what happened when we did the second demo was kind of a happy accident because the music was sounding pretty much the same like the first demo. They had that kind of beat that Tony liked and the kind of kind of free-form metal, if you want to call it that. There were no songs really. There was just kind of very uh, avant-garde and very weird. But when you recorded it and you played it back through this these old hi-fi speakers I had in the studio, it sounded pretty boring, to be honest. It sounded cool and it was super loud, you know, in the rehearsal room slash studio. So at the time I had bought um, a reverb unit from Alessis, I believe it was called Microverb 2. And it was this little uh, small device and I had really figured out this auxiliary system yet. I was not really sure how I would connect stuff. So I remember pretty much connecting the, the, the output from the cassette machine into the reverb and then out from the reverb into my other tape deck to do the mix down. And it was set on like the mix knob that makes it, you know, from dry to wet was like at 85% or whatever. And this gigantic hall setting sounded like you were almost in a church. And all of a sudden the, the, the music just sounded like it was recorded in hell. 
And we all looked at each other, what the fuck just happened? This is the most evil thing I've ever heard, you know? The drums sounded like the intro to I Love It Loud on acid, and everything else, the screams and all the others, the shit just like, oh, so this is like a cool button, turn it to, to zero, it's like pretty boring, and you turn it all the way up, it's like massive mass in hell. <laughs> it was super weird, I still remember that, that wow, let's do it in this way. And from that moment on, it really sounded like they were the most evil band in the world because the music translated so well with that a massive amount of reverb on it. And uh, everything they were having, you know, the imagery and how everything was supposed to be super evil, that I felt that, that, that the kind of recording situation that just sucked out that evil out of it, it just put it back in, you know, thousandfold just because of that massive amount of reverb. And it was not just like a fine tuning, a little bit more on the snare, blah, blah, blah. it was like full reverb on everything, boom. <laughs> and that became the sound of Abruptum, which made the dudes in Norway going like, wow, this is the most evil thing ever. And um, that was the formula we repeated for then the first album and the second album. And um, to be honest with you, I, I mean, I wish I could give you all the, the, the the stories about Abruptum, but the way it took off and the way that was like such a boost for, for Tony and, and also for all his, his friend, you know, that what I do remember is that we did the first album, we just turned off the light in the studio and the only light you had was the stuff coming from the, the equipment. There was barely no equipment with any lights on it, so it was pretty much total darkness. And they just recorded stuff, you know? And I remember at some point, I just fumbled out in the dark and started hitting things with drumsticks or hitting the players or <laughs> whatever to make them scream. And there were all kinds of ideas that, that for one song, Tony, he wanted to record. I had this kind of sofa thing that I had, you know, got from my parents and they were kind of hollow, you know, beneath it. So I remember a bunch of us lifted up the sofa and trapped Tony under the sofa with a microphone so he would get claustrophobic and really have pure anxiety attack. And he wanted to record that because I guess the guy was not too big on being, you know, closed in under a fucking sofa with him being a pretty small guy. He had no way of making it out there himself. And <laughs> that was just one of those, it's like, all how do we make the most extreme thing? But it was not like faking extreme, you know? And I remember turning the light on and we had in the, in the studio, which was also Unicorns rehearsal space. And we were a serious melodic prog band and we had just renovated the whole thing. And there was like blood all over our blue carpet. I was like, what the fuck you did here? And I saw knives being pulled out from our kind of, you know, our toolbox. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, we were cutting ourselves. You know, we were getting in the, in the vibes. Okay, whatever you say, guys, you know. So those were massive, strange jam session things. And they just happened to be released on albums. And, and the second album is, is a super weird story. I, we decided they had really no bigger budget. And I told them, yeah, we can do it, but this is the way we're going to do it. There were two guys. It was um, Morgan from Marduk. I guess his nickname was uh, Evil or something like that. There were two guys, Tony on drums and Morgan on, on guitar, and then they had microphones to scream in or whatever. 
I said, we would record it live, straight to that, which was like a digital tape, making it the first digital album I ever recorded, because it was all just sound checked and recorded straight to two tracks of that. There was no way we could mix it or add anything. So we made sure that the sound coming out of the speakers, that was going to be recorded and in, in, in no way um, changed by the recording medium. So um, yeah, and when we had the bombastic reverb craze going on that we needed, I remember telling them that, yeah, you can start playing now. I will bike home and have a coffee and I will be back in an hour and we'll see what happens. So I remember <laughs> sneaking out of the studio, turning off the main light switch, leaving it again in complete darkness, only with the meters flashing from the equipment. And I had no idea what was going on then down there. I never listened to it, I had no idea. And I remember sneaking up again on the way in and she's like standing a little bit in, in the pantry looking in. I think they are like kind of ready. And when the music had kind of faded out, I just went in, turned on the light switch and put stop on the DAT record. And I said, yeah, here's your, here's your album. Nice having you, you know. <laughs> so um, one, one of the fastest uh, recording of an album still being re-released on like vinyl every five years that I have ever heard of actually. Maybe in a total with soundcheck and, and whatever, two hours, two and a half maybe. Pretty, pretty weird. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I, I, I happened to stumble upon an abrupt, it might have been a bootleg of some sort allegedly, um, at a young age, in the 90s, when it was still, I guess, kind of fresh. And I've always been fascinated with the project and with um, the legacy, I guess you could say, of Tony Sarka. And I appreciate that story because I felt like you gave us some behind-the-scenes information without spoiling the shadowy nature of the project uh, and the mystery. And another kind of infamous black metal figure um, with a much different a a approach to music and production that you mentioned... Um, I, you mentioned it before. As an American, I'm inclined to say um, uh, Jan Notvate. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but uh, John or Jan from Dissection. If you can maybe correct my pronunciation of his name respectfully, uh, rest in peace, and maybe just give us some insight into working with him. Well, uh, I guess the way it's pronounced is Jan Notvate. You can have okay. it. <laughs> yeah, but I know it's John is, is, is pretty much uh, the way... The Americans say it also without the age, but it's really Jun. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's a Norwegian name, and um, yeah, well, I he's one of the one of the. I think genius is a really strong word, but when it comes to, to being a guy playing in a metal band together with with Mike from Opeth, he's one of the few that I would probably call like at least a metal writing genius because of the way that he approached the whole genre and, and the way he wrote the riffs and the way he sang, he is he's one of the prodigies, you know, that I have come across in, in my 30-year career. And um, yeah, it was, was a special time. I, I did, um, as far as, I did a bunch of sessions with Yoon, actually. Started with the Somberlane, uh, of course, the vocal sessions for Optalamia was the first. And then we did the Somberlane and um, already there, I could kind of, um, sense that he was the the guy in the lineup that that made the most things happen you know he was like the main songwriter an excellent guitar player he had his super cool sunburst les paul with mini humbuckers and in those days everyone had like a, a pink charville or you know it was like eh, what are you doing with that old person guitar you know but it sounded fabulous and i still remember we were setting up the guitar sounds for 
for Somberlane, I was pretty much like, ah, we should go straight into this GCM Marshall here, you know, that's that's the, the best sound, you know, and I remember putting a, an as evil sound as I could on it, like full gain and whatever, and he played a bit and, and he just looked at me and said, this sounds ridiculous. And then he just brought out his distortion pedal, like a turbo distortion from Boss, and he just kind of took with the settings that was already on it and just connected it in between the guitar and the Marshall. And it just kind of collided into this, what they call now the, the Swedish death black sound or whatever. It's just like distortion pedal plus fully distortion on the, on the amp. And it just was like giving it this metallic, really compressed, super cool vibe. And that was the kind of sound he was used to hearing. I said, like, wow, that sounds really cool, you know? So yeah, I told you so, it was wimpy, the other sound. I said, like, okay, <laughs> here you go. And uh, yeah, it just brought out that metallic edge to all his riffing. And uh, that's one of those memory flashes that's really strong from, from the Somberlane. Also, uh, of course, because I did it, I remember it, that I did all these this heavy metal screams and all the monk choirs and stuff on the first track. And I actually recorded a kind of mini Moog solo also on one of the last songs on the album. Because the rest of the recording went kind of smooth. It was super stressed out. I think we had five or seven days, I cannot remember. So um, recorded um, two guitars, bass and drums at the same time, or two guitars and drums. I cannot really remember. But I remember that both guitars were recorded at the same time. And then once we had the two guitars and drums, we I just rewind uh, the tape and they would again record two guitars at the same time, doubling their own parts, you know, but not separately, both guys again, because that meant we, we were kind of cutting the, the doubling time in half because we had no time, you know? So that, that's one of mm. my everlasting memories. It was all of the time looking at the clock, shit, we, will we have time to mix this, you know? And yeah, then it took off and then they came back to work for um, two songs from a compilation album by Wrong Again Records and they recorded an early version of Where Dead Angels Sly and a cover of the track Elizabeth Bathory from, I think, Tormentor from Hungary. And then they came back again and then we did uh, Storm of the Lightsbane, recorded it and mixed it while I was still in my old moldy window and toilet less rehearsal room. And um, yeah, the mix didn't turn out the way they wanted it. Um, so we re-recorded some bits and then we remixed it at my new location in Örebro. But also that mix didn't satisfy mainly the label this time, I think. So there was a lot of talking and then they came back and um, yeah, they did then a third remix or second remix, but a third mix. And that's the mix that's on the album. And um, then um, I didn't hear from, from Jon for a bit. And then he, all of a sudden he asked if I was interested in producing his evil satanic techno record with um, the Infernali. And I was like, yeah, it sounds like fun, you know, why not? So I remember renting a lot of uh, techno <laughs> sounding keyboards at the local music <laughs> shop and started programming all this <laughs> stuff. And I think this is so weird. <laughs> I'm here with like two black metal icons. Uh, one guy called Mike, I think from some other pretty hip black metal band at the time. And we're doing techno. <laughs> and they're gonna scream satanic chants over this. and. I ended up doing like my own Michael Kiske impersonation on a song called Sign of the Dark, which is the, the only techno song that I ever sang on ever, and I hope so until I die. 
Uh, but it was weird, <laughs> actually, a weird thing. It's like, oh, could you sing with your heavy metal vocal on this? Yeah, of course, strange mix, but yeah. And uh, that one is also a little bit of a weird underground classic. So, uh, and that was the last time I, I worked with, with Yoon. And um, yeah, then I met him actually just, I think it's anything from like the same day to a couple of months before the, the infamous murder took place, because I was in Yotobori at the time. And um, then I heard about it later and yeah, he was of course then going to jail. And the very last time I met him was backstage at Zwacken in 2005 when we played there with Bloodbath and we just had this like wow cool I haven't seen you in forever and it was was like this super cool guy he was of course very different from from the body the first time I met him in 1989 he was looking like he was eight or whatever and now he was this big guy you know bald head with tattoos and all that stuff yeah and it was like cool blah blah what you do here and this and that and yeah the next I heard was from the headlines from the newspapers in Sweden that he had killed himself, which was for me a huge blow, of course. But yeah, it was was pretty pretty strange, and and I was a little bit out of the whole scene there, you know, because I had been super deep in all these kind of Norwegian bands with the Swedish bands, what they were doing when they were not doing music with all their satanic clubs and who's more evil than the other guy, I'm gonna kill you, kind of things. And I was just out of all that, so I didn't really know what, what Jun was up to with his own strange anti-cosmic whatever. So yeah, it was a huge blow because I think um, I have actually never heard this Rian Chaos album because I have this thing about listening to albums that band I worked with when they didn't work with me. I have a weird, I cannot listen to that stuff. I don't know why. It's just one of those hmm. being a bit offended kind of vibes. It, it's just a... It's just a way that I work, you know? So I never heard it, but I've heard some people love it, some people don't, and uh, yeah, sadly that was his, the last, I think he could have gone on to do, do really, really, really great things. Yeah, um, well, you know, uh, rest in peace to uh, to him and to um, uh, Dissection, and I appreciate you sharing uh, those kind of behind the scenes uh, stories. Um, you know, we, we ask that respectfully, obviously acknowledging that these are people you worked with and, uh, you know, you, as you said, it was kind of a blow to you to, to hear that news. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, we've been talking to you for over an hour now. We appreciate so much you sharing uh, your time with us. Like I said before, we're never going to be able to cover all of your bands and projects. Um, I even have some questions I'm not going to be able to get to if we're going to be respectful of your time. Uh, but that being said... Um, I guess it could be said that um, Witherscape on Century Media with your bandmate, if I got this name right, uh, Ragnar um, Weiderberg, <clears throat> is probably your most uh, current and modern project. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, is there anything that you would like to, um, before we ask you to recommend some music, is there anything that, that we um, uh, failed to mention that you'd like to express in this interview or anything that you'd like to plug about more uh, current projects? Well, um, plugging current projects are, are pretty difficult because there there are no current projects. With this game is the last, mm -hmm. and I kind of reached um, a point again, coming a little bit to my condition or what you want to call it. But the moment I signed to to Century Media and kind of rebooted a little bit as a songwriter and musician, um, I kind of did really much in a really short time. Uh, I mean, some bands they put together an album and then they. They don't do anything for two or three years, you know. But I was doing albums, 
plus mixing and mastering other people's music like non-stop and um, I kind of burn out after doing the Northern Sanctuary from Witherscape and Retribution with Nightingale, the first Witherscape, the Witherscape EP, you know, and all that, all that stuff also involving really much promotion work, thinking about all the cover and, you know, anything from what the photos will look like. It was just becoming, coming to a point where I had to make a decision. Do I want to be acting like I am a full-time musician, which I have never been for a day in my life, despite of what people might think. I've, I've always been working, mixing and mastering or even recording music for other people, or I was supported through, you know, the state or my parents, you know. I never once tried to be a working musician because I knew from the moment I would try, it would kill me because I'm not set out for, for that kind of thing where I had to make my living from my music. So um, I just kind of decided like five years ago that, that that's enough, you know. I'm gonna focus on, on getting, uh, I have a kind of, I don't know what to call it. I mean, the music that I'm doing with, with this uh, project called Second Sky is kind of the music we were doing with Unicorn, uh, which was one of my, the few real bands I have ever been in. And um, it's kind of the third Unicorn album that we never got around to do because we broke up at the end of 99. So I've been using that album now and then. It's been in kind of in progress now for like 20 years or whatever. So I'm actually working on that one. And that's just enough, you know. I mix and master so much stuff. And I have family, you know, I have to have a life on the side. So um, whenever I feel like doing some kind of musician work i work on that album and hopefully it will be ready someday and apart from that you know i just do stuff that that actually generates some money because we all know that that being a musician today have never been harder you know with even now with the corona shit taking away the livelihood of, of playing gigs and doing tours you know it's, it's really really rough and brutal out there so i'm happy that there is still you know mixing and mastering to be done because people need that stuff for the music to be to be heard you know so um, yeah, that's that's all I can say about that future stuff. You know, I have that kind of progressive pop thing, uh, but as any other stuff, that it's not happening musically for me, and it's good. So you know, I made the choice, and it was the right choice, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay, and. Um you know, yeah, before, and right before we ask you to recommend something, um, you know, I should mention that you have swanomerch.com yeah. and swanomerch.bandcamp.com, yeah. which is a good place for the listeners if they want to start perusing uh, maybe some of your uh, lesser-known projects, um, older material. I know there was kind of a, a lot of work that you did the last few years transferring analog uh, reels and, and, and forms of music from your past onto digital formats, and a lot of that is available on swanomerch.bandcamp.com, right? Yeah, that, that was really um, a big thing for me because, you know, sometimes um, I was uh, around the time I was trying to, to, to write something, you know, to make a new album in some whatever, like metal ish or whatever. And when I try to force myself out of some kind of you know, retirement musically, I always did this thing that I, I started uh, transferring my old stuff and remastering it and just digging around old tapes. You know, you, you find some some forgotten jewels here and there that you can nick a riff for. You know, you just get in the vibe of working with your own music. And uh, it didn't really pay off in that sense, but of course, it's all there on Bandcamp. 
And um, I have actually um, transferred also um, the Old Edge of Sanity albums, or uh, as 24-bit, 96 kilohertz, as uh, the actual masters, the 24-track masters for the first two albums. And I have uh, transferred quite recently the Spectral Sorrows, uh, also on 16-track. And I will be going to Sweden uh, next week to bring home the rest of the master tapes and, and also transfer Purgatory Afterglow until Eternity Ends and Crimson. And, um, you know, at some point in time there will be reissues or whatever, and I want to remix some tracks or the whole thing, depending on, and, and just use as bonus material because I think even though people are extremely used to the way albums sound because they've heard them for like 25, 30 years, it doesn't mean that they couldn't have made a bigger impact if they had sounded better or different, you know. So I just want to present some of the of the things that I always found annoying about the production of some of the stuff, rather than just replacing it and say, oh, it's only one version and that's the remix, that's not going to happen. So there will always be respectfully remastered versions and then maybe with a bonus CD, you know, a bonus whatever, um, I will, you know, spend some time with that shit after I am done with the album from the Second Sky project that I mentioned earlier. And uh, also the, the t-shirt thing is a really, really cool thing that I actually take up also a lot of my spare time. Um, but that's more of my wife's kind of thing. She always um, told me that I should do that, but I just never felt that there was really a market for it. But she proved me wrong. And we have been going on now for, I think, five years, and we have sold an awesome amount of t-shirts, considering that all bands are, are kind of gone, you know? None of them are really doing anything. And of course, it's very focused around Edge of Sanity, but Pandemonium also do really well. We have some really strange motives, you know. And, and since we, we made the choice to uh, go over to, to digital print and make it possible for even the most extreme strange objects to be printed on a T-shirt, even if only one person order it, that shirt is made. And it's totally professional best possible t-shirt and the, the printers are super good so it just cost a few bucks more but if you want to have that super strange pandemonium shirt or an infested logo shirt or even a steel logo shirt you can just buy it you know it's there you don't have to wait for like a pre-order of a hundred persons like it was in the old times no just one guy order it he get it you want the shirt to be pink yeah you can have it not a problem you know so uh that's a wonderful uh thing and um we're doing we're doing good, you know, with the with the t-shirt sales, and that's a really fun side project because I love just uh, finding all the old original artwork, you know, and make sure that one is scanned. You know, we don't really do that CD booklet in the scanner thing. You know, I actually contacted everyone who made the original artwork, and we have that. You know, we have scans, or I actually have the original art piece, and that's what the t-shirts are made from. Nice, very okay. legit. Wow, that, that's that's a pitch. Um, and you know, we <laughs> recommend that the listeners check out swanomerch.bandcamp.com and swanomerch.com. And before we let you off the hook, Dan, we just ask that if you could recommend to us and to the listeners one newer release and one older release by any artists, any genre at all, just uh, so we could say, "I'm listening to this." Dan Swano said it's cool. Well, this is always complicated because, um, I mean, the old stuff, there's just so much to choose from. And uh, the, the problem is that I am not really listening to any other music than either old stuff or the stuff I am working on, you know. 
So I figured out that, that maybe the audience here is more rooted in, in the more violent kind of music. So I'm, I think <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on, on, on pointing out an album. I mean, I did the, the, the upcoming Oceans of Slumber album is fantastic. But because it's not out yet, and I know some people might want to try stuff right now, I think that there is an album that, that might be overlooked because the nature of, of how the industry works. There's a Greek band called On Thorns I Lay. And I did um, two albums with them now, but uh, the latest one, who came out just some months ago, is, is an extremely good kind of doom death album. Where, uh, I know it sounds weird, but I hear my my own music being reflected in the way they write the riffs. So I was kind of drawn to the music because I find myself thinking at least like once per song, like, fuck, I wish I had written that riff. That would have been so perfect on that, you know, and it kind of made me react also. Uh, I mean, I work with everything, you know, it doesn't mean that I, I will have a personal connection with the music. I do it more from a sonic point of view. But sometimes the music speaks to you and you think, fuck, that's a really good riff, you know, and I, I told them this also, and I might have to, to buy a few of those riffs from you <laughs> if I ever do any metal album in the future. And they were like, oh, thank you, you know, we grow up with your stuff, blah, blah. So check that one out on Thornton Lay. It sounds really good, of course, haha, but I mean, <laughs> the music is, um, is extremely powerful. It's got that um, big bombastic doom thing without, uh, you know, there are so many crossovers in that genre. This is just the pure, raw, very deep growling vocals, and that's it. You know, you don't have any super fancy female things or orchestras or whatever. Just like good doom death. And for the old one, it's always complicated because um, there's there's so many albums that have uh, inspired me. But then again, most people know about the albums. You know, it's like Death Leprosy. It's like yeah, of course. It's one of the reasons why I'm talking to you today, together with Left Hand Path. But those are like super classics, you know? So I think one album where I find pretty much all the songs being awesome, that is sadly overlooked, is, is an Australian band called Hobbs' Angel of Death. Oh, yes. I'm not really sure when the album came out. It was 88 or 89, but I bought it during that time when I was searching, you know? There was... I was having um, kind of almost weekly record shop meetings with friends. We would just go crazy, like a frenzy, just like searching for anything where the cover looks brutal or where, you know, you heard a rumor about that being the fastest band in the world, blah, blah, blah. We were just crazy, like 15, 16 year old kids. And then you stumble on, on a few albums that were actually more musical than, than you might have thought looking at the cover or the titles or whatever. But because I come from a background where I was actually singing and playing progressive rock long before I, I did anything even remotely close to thrash, which is uh, pretty unusual, I think. I also uh, really enjoyed it when the music was a little bit of both, you know, when they had also more mellow moments, they, they worked a little bit with different instrumentation and that the musicianship was top-notch, especially the drumming was super important for me. So when I heard a Hobbs Angel of Death album, what struck me was that they were they were in this borderland between thrash and death and black. Thinking back, maybe not any death metal at all, actually, more like thrash black metal thing. And um, the drummer was just incredibly fantastic. 
He was, his name is Darren McMaster Smith. I think it was like a, he is become later like a session player or whatever. And for me, he is way cooler than all the other usual suspects, you know, of the of the best drummers. For me, he is he is the guy. And um, they recorded with Harris Johns in uh, in Berlin, so the sound is really cool. And the riffs are just so goddamn simple, but still cool. And the lyrics are like over the top and it's just i don't know something about that record that made me i go back to it every now and then and um sadly peter hobbs no longer with us he died a couple of years back but i actually managed to see them live at some really small club in germany where i live since eight years and um that was just massive for me to see it was only peter hobbs of course from the from the lineup but anyone who wants to to have this kind of i mean it's wrong to call it old, old school because it's only school, you know. It's, it was not old when they did it. That was the thing they were doing. And they had been going on forever. I, I looked them up a little bit. Uh, uh, they were coming from already in the mid-80s doing this kind of Venom kind of stuff with some other band. And then he just kind of quit that band and started Hobbs Angel of Death. So um, that's my recommendation. I would say all the songs on that album are super, but the way they implement the 12-string the acoustic guitar into the stuff inspired the hell out of me when I did one of the more famous songs I've done for Bloodbath called Eaton. So for me, there's like a Hobbs Angel of Death tribute part in the middle of that song that a few people might be able to pick up on. But um, yeah, that's the one that, that just came to mind, you know, when you ask me for, for something from the past, that, that it's not, you know, what everybody know about all the time. That's, I mean, the cover is super cheesy. The guy's standing in, flames or whatever you know it's a good drawing but it looks kind of like oh I'm not gonna buy that record and they are posing with kangaroos and calling themselves <laughs> virgin metal you know whatever it's like super cheesy uh, but just listen to it you know listen to uh, the, the really good stuff like Lucifer's Domain or Satan's Crusade Marie Antoinette House of Death all those songs are super cool yeah, uh, rest in peace um, to Peter Hobbs. I believe he yeah. just passed away last last year in 2019. Uh, and kind of an overlooked band if people are into maybe what people refer to sometimes as the first wave black metal bands, those kind of evil thrash bands. That's something you might want to uh, check out too and put in the mix. Um, Dan, we, we really appreciate your time. Um, you've been very open with us. You're a gentleman. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And we should just quickly um, shout out our mutual friend and friend of the show, Rick Habib of Grey Skies Fallen, uh, also of Buckshot Facelift and Reeking Aura, my, my uh, bandmate and, and uh, good friend. He kind of uh, hooked us up, and um, I feel like he's, he's a part of the conversation in some ways. And he's turned me on to a lot of your music over the years. And, um, you know, now that I've shouted him out, Dan, before we let you go, uh, is there this, anything else you want to say to listeners of your music uh, or listeners of our podcast? Well, first, thanks to Rick for making it happen. He's, he's a cool cool cat, cool dude. And uh, I had a privilege to meet him when we were, me and my wife, had a holiday in, in New York. He came down from wherever he lived in the mountains. And, and we had a really good time also uh, with Matt from Sentient Horror and uh, also Timmy Toskas, who was our, our own driver. He used to be in a band called Dawn of Dreams that I did a song for. I actually sang on it also like 10 years back. They're really, really cool dudes. We had an awesome time with them in New York. We were at this uh, St. Vitus bar and then we, we just went somewhere else and crashed a hotel bar and got super drunk. That was, that was, that was good times. So um, 
big hi to these guys. Yeah, and I think for everyone listening, it's um, just head on over to swanemerch.com and also the Bandcamp stuff, of course. It's, it's really cool. There's this compilation CD I've done with some really weird stuff out there that people is constantly asking me to, to release on whatever, seven inches or whatever, but I just figured that's, that's too much paperwork. <laughs> So I'm just selling it myself, you know, and it's there on, on Bandcamp, like Metal Collection Part 1 and 2. You have some really, really cool, much of the stuff I did with Tony Serke also there. You have the incision stuff and some pretty weird stuff. And you can just listen to it like once, you know, you don't, you don't have to buy it. But if you want to know a little bit where I come from, there's also Unicorn. It's all over Spotify. My band Ghost, you can find uh, under Ghost ADP on, on everywhere, you know, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. It's also my, my musical heritage from the album. We did a double vinyl single CD release called 1983 to 1988 with a lot of cool kind of hard rock stuff with, with the real ghost, not that other Pope ghost. <laughs> but funny enough, actually, I got, I got a photo of that Pope ghost guy holding my ghost's album because we, we were like... He's just like not even an hour away from where I grew up. He formed his ghost and he actually wanted me to record and produce the first ghost album ah. with his ghost. But uh, the label thought it was a bad idea and they went then with some other dude. So that, that could have been interesting. But I would probably have said no because he stole my band name. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was also, there was also a ghost uh, back in the day from Poland which has an interesting connection to you because the record label The Crypt, who does reissues, reissued the Ghost from Poland record and the Maceration record, which is uh, a record you appeared, you allegedly appeared on using a pseudonym, right? Yeah, that's, that's me as Day Desira with, with Jacob Hansen and Jacob Schulz <laughs> from Invocator. Yes. Yeah, it's small world sometimes. And I still remember actually, um, I think around 1989, my brother bought Record Collector magazine and I just stumbled on another band called Ghost. And they had released albums like in the late 60s and they just killed me. It's like, no, they cannot have our <laughs> band name. What the fuck, you know? But by then we were already moving on to other band names. But it just felt like the world was so much smaller than when you couldn't just type it into some search engine. And I'm pretty sure there's like mm -hmm. a zillion Ghost. I think Paul Chapman, rest in peace, he also had a band called Ghost. Uh, somewhere after he left UFO in between all the wasted stuff. So it's like everywhere you look, there's a ghost, you know. But <laughs> yeah, these days there's only one, I guess. And they're pretty cool. I yeah. like uh, some songs from that that famous ghost. It's pretty cool. Allegedly, allegedly, <laughs> we don't, we, we haven't, we haven't, we haven't reached out for an interview yet. But we do appreciate uh, you giving us an interview, Dan, and we appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, maybe one day we can meet up again. Uh, and, uh, you know, we didn't even talk about bloodbath or any of that sort of thing. But our listeners know the deal. Uh, we're always respectful of your time. So, um, you know, going forward, we'll be in touch with you as this, uh, this episode is produced. And uh, we wish you the best, Dan. Thank you, man, uh, so much for your time. Yeah, thanks a lot for your time, too, guys.
right, man. Wow, Dan Swano. Um, I, I'm a little like shell shocked, man. At first, I was a little anxious going in, man. A lot to talk about. Uh, nice guy. Really provided a great conversation. Open to everything we asked him, man. You know, unfortunately, we don't have five hours to talk about everything. But um, I, I, I thought it was a good interview, man. I enjoyed talking to Dan Swano. Thanks to him. Oh yeah, great, great insight, uh, and uh, some some behind the scenes recording techniques to get that uh, the the true uh, authentic dark feel, you know? Yeah, terrifying. Next time your singer's not doing it right, shove him under a couch. Oof! Hey, they they they, they want that that uh, authentic sound, man. Um, and you know, I look to you guys. I might have to shove one of you guys underneath the couch if you can't recommend me some authentic sounds. What's going on over there? All right, um, I got. I have a sound for you. Uh, this week, I'm bringing in the band Zyklon. They're two, oh boy. <laughs> their 2001 Yikes. Candlelight Records release, World of Worms. Hmm. Um, damn. So, uh, yeah, so this is a band started by Samoth and Trim Torsen of Emperor in 1998. I've never been... Uh, to into Emperor, never kind of like dove in. They've always been on the peripheral, but I mean, Jesus Christ, the musicianship is is out of control. Uh, this is some blackens like wind tunnel, Mad Max, death metal with with hints of industrial. Um, for me, it's it's it remind, it's like a turned up behemoth meets the Matrix. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of like we they watch the Matrix, and I'm like, they're like we have to do this. Uh, and it's interesting too because we talk about. You know, album art a lot on the podcast and, you know, stuff about like the gore and, and the really uncomfortable kind of gruesome scenes. But this has to be one of the most disturbing uh, album covers I've ever seen before in my life. So I urge you guys to check it out. Some sort of skinny Scott Weiland looking guy crawling out of a random hole with. And I know those worms aren't to scale. Uh, I used to feed those worms to my water dragon back in the day. Just crawling up on them. It's extremely off-putting, but this we're we're here to listen to songs, right? In the CD pamphlet, I mean the the back of the CD where it was released, the uh, band photo with the armed member of the band. I don't know which one that is, <laughs> but uh, very Matrixy. But this album is fucking killer, though. Brutal black metal, like you said, just so fucking intense, and the instruments are just on point. Love it. Yeah, and there's something to this. Um pushing digital kind of tone to it that I think adds to the to the vibe. Um, it's not overtly contemporary, but it's a uh, it's a take on it. Uh, definitely adds to this wasteland apocalyptic sort of sound. Uh, but the whole it's just super intense, man. Uh, loving it. Love the riffs. So 90s, so late 90s. And you guys remember a few months ago, I was on that wave where I was super into the Matrix and the Blade movies and the Crow movies, and I was like <laughs> watching all of them and talking. Uh, I, I got a little, I feel a little flashbacks here, little, you know, like little break, you know, breakbeat type things. Uh, yeah, I mean, a very uh, interesting, dark record. I'm a little scared. Um, I, f I feel like one of the unwitting victims in, like, the, the Blade movies where the vampires are coming for you or in the Matrix where, like, the Agent Smith just takes you over real quick and you, you're, you're zapped out. I don't, I'm scared a little bit. I don't know what yeah. to think. But, but yeah, you, you, um, you definitely, when you, when you deal with these Norwegian guys, you got to go to the dark side a lot of times, man. It gets crazy, man. An interesting, thought-provoking album. Yeah. 
There we go. Zyklon. Not to be confused with Zyklon B, which is another band with uh, the two guys from Emperor. For some reason, they did that, what? too. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> For today's recommendation from me, uh, I'm going new, a band called Rats Will Feast from Finland. Their new EP, Songs of a Racehorse, released July 17th, 2020, uh, recorded by Ula Marinen, if I get that right. And then uh, I just found this out while I was putting together all my technicals here, uh, mixed by Dan Swano. Or mastered by Dan Swano, rather. Mm. So, oh, yeah. I hey. yeah, I was listening oh, to it boy. all week. And... Uh, Man, this stuff gets close. So, this is a, uh, a hardcore band. But uh, an interesting hardcore band because their approach to songwriting is a little more technical than your average hardcore band with the time signatures, I've noticed. A lot of uh, interesting time signatures here, which is something that a lot of hardcore bands don't play with. But to choose to do hardcore that grooves with odd time signatures is uh, a little more for the proggy folks or... Uh, technical death metal people so it's nice hearing hardcore riffs with technical time signatures and a bit of atmosphere which is nice uh, some black metal adjacent noises and um, simplistic playing on top of riffs uh, layering to create this th this excellent EP right here uh, so you got the atmosphere the technical stuff it doesn't feel technical though and it's got the hardcore push all the way through. It's still hardcore all the way. So, uh, yeah, one of the cooler hardcore releases I've heard this year. Yeah, yeah. I found this really interesting. It, uh, I'm sorry, Justin. Did, did I cut you off? No, go ahead. Oh, my bad, dude. Um, I found it really interesting. I'm sorry. I was excited about this one. I found <laughs> it really interesting. Um, uh, it blended that kind of screechy, traditional uh, hardcore uh, that traces its root, roots back to like the, the 90s, I guess you could say, with black metal in an unexpected way. And, um, you know, sometimes when you hear that, that black metal being blended with hardcore, you picture this kind of melodramatic, um, reductionist view of black metal that ends, ends up being kind of like a depressing screamo thing, um, you know, which, which is unfortunately there are some bands that, that fall under that category. This, uh, though, like in opposition to, to that, it really shines because, like you said, it's the, the technicality is subtle, but there's something in a lot of the writing that just kind of harkens you back to black metal and, and kind of old school doomy death metal in weird ways. In some of the, I guess, I guess you could say maybe the, cho the choices of notes and um, the, the, some of the guitar work and not, not to the point where it's, the overall frame just sounds like a bunch of guys making their little pet metal project or something. It's people that seem firmly invested in hardcore music uh, and who have also studied some of the more like nuanced parts of writing black metal and death metal. And, and they've woven it all together in an unexpected way um, that makes them stand out from what, what you would normally think when I say a band that has black metal elements within hardcore, you know, which is definitely worth checking out. I'm a huge fan of the first Every Time I Die record. 
mm. it's my finish every time I die dream, you know, incorporating all like those death metal and, and black metal parts. But um, with that bounce, that odd time bounce that uh, that I love about like weird upstate hard New York hardcore. So I'm loving this a lot. And uh, everything you said, everything Will said. There it is. All right. Now uh, we said it all. Listen to it now. Okay, Nomad is a uh, death metal, black metal adjacent band from Poland. Uh, their latest album, Transmogrification, uh, if I got that right, is out on Witching Hour Productions as of March 2020, fairly new. And they have kind of a long-running career dating back to 1994. Um, people might recognize the guy Seth, who's also a member of Behemoth. Uh, on guitars, who's kind of like the, one of the longest-running members of this band, uh, Nomad. And there's other, like, behemoth-adjacent um, people, I think people from their local scene who've played in both bands and things like that over the years. Uh, but not to be overshadowed by behemoth, this reminded me... I gotta, I gotta say this, I'm familiar with this album, and um, I, di I didn't purchase this one yet, but I actually do own their uh, The Independence of Observation uh, Thought... Is that what it is the cassette? It's, I'm looking at it up on the wall. It's a cassette flex, but um, it doesn't stray too far from their traditional style, which reminds me a lot of maybe Cannibal Corpse or Swedish deranged influenced death metal style in some ways. There's a constant uh, back rhythm of just that blasting one-two death metal sped up skank that you might associate with older Cannibal Corpse, and which deranged has made into almost a trademark rhythm throughout their career. Uh, but Nomad flips that more brutal, um, I guess you could say Western American death metal approach into some really compelling atmospheric uh, and, and even melodic at times black metal and I, even I'm maybe folk influenced black metal um, at times and that makes it truly stand apart because it hits me in a lot of the ways that your vintage brutal death metal from the mid 90s before everything got very slammy and, and all that sort of thing. Um, hits me, but then it also expands into uh, almost like a uh, like those bands that are very reverent of nature and paint like a, um, a sonic landscape, so to speak, with like these very epic breaks in their music. Nomad does that very well. Really interesting band, um, and also not to downplay the Behemoth similarities in some ways. Maybe if you're a fan of older Behemoth, me personally, um, I have to explore Behemoth a little bit more. I've never been a huge fan of, of everything I've heard, but uh, you know this this band Nomad is really doing something special and interesting within the kind of uh, a traditional brutal death metal um, approach mixed with that epic black metal approach. So I really suggest this. The album again, if I could pronounce it again correctly one more time today, Transmogrification, uh, Partis is the album on Witching Hour Productions by Nomad from Poland, and they have a lengthy discography. You can go back if you get into that.
All right, guys. So, um, you know, yeah, and, the, and also just the, the production and the sound quality on that Nomad, I thought it was appropriate um, to, to bring up a, a classy release like that on our Dan Swano episode. Shout out to Dan Swano. Um, really appreciate uh, his time today discussing all that with us, uh, you know, acknowledging again that hopefully we can get him back for another episode one day to talk about uh, all the bands and projects we didn't mention. Uh, too much to get through in one episode. Swanomerch.bandcamp.com is where you can go through some of those bands and projects that maybe we didn't even mention today. And Swanomerch.com is where you can check out some of those um, insanely high-quality, uh, personalized, custom customizable T-shirts. He, he gave the whole sales pitch, man. I'm not going to do it again. But Dan Swano is the man. We appreciate him. We appreciate Rick Habib for uh, hooking us up. Mutual friend, friend of the show. Yeah, shout out to and, Rick. And uh, I appreciate... Yes, yeah, shout out to Rick, and I appreciate you guys. Hey, we're just here for the ride. And appreciate also to make all, the ride man. happen, but we're having a good time doing it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, so, you know, one thing that uh, Dan forgot to, to plug was uh, the heavyholepodcast.com and all the wonderful stickers that we have available in a nice little plastic bag that we can uh, mail to you for some money. So check that out, heavyholepodcast.com slash shop. And uh, put some stickers on some things. I guarantee they won't melt in the in the summer heat in the continental U.S. Uh, and if they do, send me a picture, and we'll, and we'll replace those. <laughs> Might get some uh, some tricksters uh, out there. Keep your heat guns uh, in your pockets. Whoa! Uh, another thing. Um, speaking of hot, that you can get on uh, on that heavyholepodcast.com is you can check out the link to our Patreon. Uh, the heavyholepodcast.com Patreon and uh, uh, if you're a pledge once a month or more now like I did tonight I'm going to give you the uh, the secret um, uh, mysterious information about a, an upcoming guest who they're going to be you can post the questions in the Patreon comments and I'll integrate them into the uh, interview as best I can uh, if we deem them appropriate and um, the only reason we don't guarantee we're going to use your questions is because they might come up naturally in conversation uh, or you guys might be on some silly trolling shit, which I'm sure you won't be. But um, either way, uh, Patreon, now we're going to do that once a month. You can get a little uh, uh, you know, hidden info on uh, an upcoming guest and um, interject your uh, 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 line of questioning in, into um, that, that person. So that's another thing you can do on uh, that heavyholepodcast.com that Justin has been so nice to set up for us. By the way, Justin, plug for you. Um, I, I know I know you do a little bit of the old web design, making the videos, working on the computer hard, and all that sort of thing, man. That reeking aura music video, the lyric video, Justin worked very hard on that. If you like the Heavy Hole podcast uh, look, if you like our imagery, our graphic design, um, shout out to Justin, man. What's what's your information if people want to professionally contact you, uh, I- I- inquiring about professional graphic design work? Oh, that's uh, yeah, that's very nice of you. Well, uh, yeah, you guys can. Um, just hit me up uh, through the Heavy Hole Podcast email. Send send a send an email to heavyholepodcast at gmail and and we'll direct you to the to the right channels. Uh, yeah, I, unless I don't like you, then I'm not going to send my friend Justin to you. Okay. Yes. There we go. Guess how many uh, thousands of dollars I charge for uh, for one Instagram post? <laughs> uh, one. 